0: Hi, my name is Andre Gonuella, I'm being joined by my co-host Ryan Rosenthal, and this is a very special episode of the Bag Podcast. We are so honored today to be joined by Dr. Richard Haas, now in his 18th year as the President of the Council on Foreign Relations, one of our country's leading foreign policy think tanks. Dr. Haas is a veteran diplomat, he is one of the most foremost voices on American foreign policy. He was formerly the director of policy planning for the Department of State. He was a principal advisor to Secretary of State Colin Powell in that position. He holds the holds the rank of ambassador. He was a coordinator for policy toward the future of Afghanistan and also a U.S. envoy toward to the Northern Ireland peace process. And he also served as a special assistant to President George H. W. Bush, advising him on policies surrounding the Near East and South Asia and was also on the National Security Council, on the staff of the National Security Council. Dr. Haas, I could go on and on and on about your exemplary resume, but we're so honored to be joined by you today. And we are very happy to discuss today your book, The World, on quite a broad topic. So thank you for joining us. Thanks
1: for the introduction, and thank you for having me. Uh, Once again, Dr. Haas, thank you for joining us. And as Andre mentioned, uh, you have a new book out titled The World, and you certainly know the world quite well. Uh, but the book covers quite a broad subject, and so I'm, I'm curious as to what motivated you to write a book on such a, a massive topic. It's quite an undertaking.
2: Well, it's different than any other book I've, I've ever written, so you're right. Uh, I'm sorry I actually felt compelled to do it. Uh, what brought it about is I, I concluded that so many Americans uh, didn't quite appreciate or understand not simply how the world worked, but why the world mattered. And the relationship between events in the world and events in this country and vice versa, what this country does in the world and why it matters. Uh, what brought it all home to me was a, a chance encounter I had one day going fishing with uh, the nephew of a friend who was about to graduate from Stanford and really didn't know the first thing about the, the world, he that he was going to enter, that was going to shape his life. And it turned out that his experience was anything but exceptional you can graduate from virtually any of the colleges and universities in this country and if you simply navigate your course requirements such you can uh graduate with little and no understanding of the world most high schools don't don't offer it international subjects rarely show up uh on morning news shows quote unquote news shows or the the nightly news shows uh Uh, Most people don't read newspapers that have heavy international coverage. So I I was worried that we essentially were having a larger and larger number of people in this country, also other countries for that matter, who were not interested in or knowledgeable of the world. And from the point of view of the United States, I feared that this would mean that we would increasingly become isolationist. People don't care about the world. They won't hold their elected officials to account. Indeed, we just had a record turnout in November. Over 150 million Americans voted, but only a handful of them voted on the basis of what either Donald Trump or Joe Biden would do uh, as commander in chief. And Again, I thought this uh, encouraged isolationism and gave presidents too much leeway and discretion. And I thought all of that was unhealthy. And this is uh, my modest or immodest way of pushing back against
0: this trend. So when I was reading your book and specifically reading part one of your book, I noticed a theme about wars and a a two-pronged question. Why do we have this fundamental focus on war in the first part of the book? And then why also launch this history of the world with the 30 years war in particular?
2: Well, two reasons. One is a lot of history is involving wars. Think of the last century. One could argue three of the the three greatest or certainly three of the greatest events of the century were World Wars I and II and the Cold War. The destruction of the first two and the impact of the Cold War, the fact that it stayed cold uh, and how, how it was conducted and ultimately how, how it ended. Those are big, big parts of history affecting the lives of virtually every human being on the uh, planet. So I don't see how you tell history, how you write the narrative or story of history without giving wars a significant place. Look, I wish it were otherwise. And yes, there are other things one can and should focus on uh, when one writes history, but it's impossible, I would think, to uh, to avoid the significance of wars. And the reason I focused on the 30 years war in the first half of the 17th century is not so much for the war itself. It was a political religious struggle that went on for a long time, Uh, across and within uh, entities. But the end of that war in 1648, the so-called Treaty of Westphalia, ushered in what you might call the modern state system. The whole idea that you would have these units in the world called uh, states or countries or nation states, choose your term of art. uh, And that sovereignty would be the organizing principle. Each one would be pretty much free to do as it chose within its borders. And others would, in principle, respect those borders, not attack them, try to change them by force, uh, not meddle within them. And again, this is an idea that's been often violated. But to the extent we have an organizing principle in the world uh, three and a half centuries later, that's as close as we come to it.
1: Absolutely. And uh, I think the interesting part of your book is after you provide this necessary context, you also dive into all the regions of the world, or at least many of the regions of the world. And you talk about, right, nearly all of them. But, but Dr. Haas, are there certain regions of the world that the foreign policy community should be paying more attention to? Are there maybe certain areas that the United States may be overlooking? Interesting question.
2: You know, the sh- my initial instinct is to say you can't af- afford to ignore any part of the world. One of the factors of globalization is that very little stays local for long. So here we are reeling from a a virus that began in Wuhan, China. Uh, Close to two million people around the world are are dead as a result. This time the virus began there, but it just as easily could have begun in some other part of the world. Or think of 9-11. In that case, terrorists were trained in Afghanistan. Many of them came or all of them came from the Middle East. Uh, another time there could be another place where they come from or 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 train climate change uh you may not be particularly interested in latin america i don't mean you two gentlemen but two individuals you individuals more broadly but if you care about climate uh look at what's happening in brazil the destruction of the amazon rainforest that might account for uh as much as you know 50 I mean, 20% of, of the world's ability to deal with greenhouse gases. Well, that's an enormous, uh, enormous uh, impact on the world. So my point is, you know, my, my going in position is I'm going to push back against your question. Uh, that said, different parts of the world are important for different reasons. Uh, I would say in the future, if I had to choose one region of the world to be preoccupied with in the 21st century, say for the next three, four or five decades, it would, be, it would be Asia, sometimes called the Asia Pacific, the Indo-Pacific. But think about it, that's where most of the people in the world are, China, India, uh, other countries. It's where the great powers, the United States, China, Russia, Japan, India, uh, all to one extent or another interact. It's the bulk of the world's uh, economy. A lot of this wealth will be turned to to military might. So if I I were pressed and you asked me, what is the part of the world most likely to write the bulk of, of of the world's history, Going forward in the 21st century, I would say Asia, uh, and that's by contrast with the 20th century, when a lot of the world's history was written in Europe. It was the dynamics of Germany, uh, France, Britain, again, the United States, uh, Russia and the Soviet Union that, that, that wrote a lot of 20th century uh, uh, history.
0: I want to take the next few questions and really sort of dig into some of these regions as you discuss in the book, uh, specifically as you talk about Asia. Uh, In your chapter on South Asia, you note that the region is plagued with uncertainty. You emphasize the Indo Pakistan conflict, uh, in addition to some commentary on Afghanistan as well. But when we're talking about South Asia and East Asia and the uncertainty in South Asia, how does our policy and view of South Asia actually grapple and interact with our approach to East Asia and this larger question now of U.S.-China relations?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I think for a long time, we tended to see South Asia largely as South Asia. And we saw India very much. Uh, we used the expression, we was hyphenated with Pakistan, Indo-Pakistani this or or that. And I think what's, what's different now is while that's still true to some extent, uh, whether you're looking at Afghanistan, India, Pakistan, their dynamic or Bangladesh or what have you, increasingly we see South Asia as if you were taking a step back from the globe or the map and much more tied to the Asia Pacific, to, to what you call East Asia. And that's in part because of the, the Sino-Indian relationship We've seen friction and violence in recent uh, months. They're the world's two most populous countries. It's a question of when, not if, India will overtake uh, China. China say, the world's second largest economy. India is uh, now the fifth. Uh, China, though, also has a very close relationship with Pakistan. So the old Indo-Pakistani relationship obviously now has elements of a triangle. And even a, a quadrilateral, because the United States has moved closer to India. We have much more of a strategic relationship. So whether you're looking at uh, economic issues or even more perhaps strategic uh, issues, diplomatic issues, it's uh, it's increasingly hard to artificially segment uh, South Asia from from. Uh, East Asia and, and, and the uh, Pacific, my, my sense is that will only become more so going forward. Again, um, in this global age, whether you're looking at benign aspects of globalization like trade and tourism, or you're looking at things that are anything but benign, uh, from terrorism to, to, to conflict, what have you, uh, I think the trends are going to be that regions will be less, less distinct and will be more affected by forces coming in from the outside, and in turn, will will themselves affect other parts of the world more.
1: And I think if we continue this conversation on, on East Asia, if you look to, to China in particular, uh, Dr. Haas, Taiwan is among one of those many pressure points that could draw the United States and China into a, a hot conflict. And in a recent foreign affairs editorial, uh, you and David Sachs argue that U.S. policy on Taiwan must be unambiguous and that U.S. must explicitly state an intention to respond to a potential Chinese use of force against Taiwan. And so, uh, Dr. Haas, I'm just I'm curious why you believe this is a course of action the United States would would take or should take and what the implications might be if we actually call China's bluff uh, and what the U.S. broader East Asian policy should really kind of look like as we move forward. I don't see it as calling China's bluff, just to be clear.
2: This, we've had an arrangement now for four decades, ever since the United States normalized its relationship with the People's Republic of China, with the mainland, uh, where we've essentially finessed the relationship between the mainland and Taiwan and among the mainland Taiwan and the United States. And we have basically said, you all sort out peacefully, not coercively. Uh, the relationship ultimately between Taiwan and the mainland, we, you know, we essentially stand by the fact there's one China. And you on the mainland, you should know that if you decide to use force or use coercion, you should not assume we will not come to Taiwan's uh, direct aid. And you on Taiwan, uh, you should not be tempted, say, to declare independence, something that would be unacceptable to the mainland uh, under the assumption that we would come to your aid. So we have basically tried to maintain stability through ambiguity. This has worked remarkably well. You know, Taiwan, think about it. Taiwan is a flourishing democracy, a thriving economy. The area has been peaceful for four decades. It would be hard to, do, to have designed a more positive four decades. The problem is you'd have to be a real optimist to think that the same formula will work for another four decades. Uh, and then the risk is not what we used to think would be that Taiwan would get uh, frustrated and, and opt for independence, but rather increasingly that the mainland looks to be impatient. And it's built up its military strength and more and more one senses impatience about this set of, uh, of uh, affairs. We see what happened to uh, Hong Kong, the violation of the one country, two systems uh, approach. So. What we were advocating in this piece is not that we change the framework of the policy. Nothing changes about the quote unquote one China policy or anything like that, but rather the means change and that rather than trying to maintain stability through ambiguity, we basically tell China, tell the mainland, uh, look, there's no ambiguity here. If you act coercively, we are going to respond to it. The reason, again, we we believe it's necessary to do that is that the mainland has become stronger, more assertive, somewhat more impatient. We also believe the stakes are enormous, that if the United States were not to come to Taiwan's defense, it would have implications not just for Taiwan, but for Japan, South Korea, Australia, India, Vietnam, and for the United States itself, the entire post-World War II uh, order of East Asia and the Pacific would, I believe, uh, be be undone uh, by this. And again, we want to still, though, tell Taiwan this is not a license to act irresponsibly. Uh, so again, nothing's changed other than how we try to maintain stability in this part of the world in terms of changing uh, power balances.
0: Just a quick follow up on that regard. Uh- I mean, with the Trump administration, we you know saw a tougher stance on Taiwan, on China. Sorry, and a closer relationship with Taiwan. Do you think the Biden administration is going to maintain this closeness that the Trump administration did with Taiwan? And do you think? How do you think the China policy is going to look like? Are we going to see more of an emphasis on democracy promotion? Do you think there's going to be more? Uh, I guess confrontations on the Uyghur situation, or just an emphasis on soft power?
2: First thing I'd say is that there'll be considerable continuity. Uh, One doesn't expect a lot of continuity between the Trump and the Biden administrations on anything, Uh, but there'll actually be more continuity probably than change when it comes to, to China policy. And I think the reason is there's been a real change in the United States across party lines over, say, the last five or so years. And it's in reaction to Xi Jinping's China, which is more repressive at home, uh, more assertive in its farm policy, and has not evolved in ways economically that people had hoped for and or anticipated. When the United States, for example, championed China's entry into the World Trade Organization, there's real disillusionment uh, with what China has has become. So you see much more uh, pushback across uh, party party lines. Already, the Biden administration has on several occasions, been quite forceful in its criticisms of uh, of China for what it's doing vis-a-vis the Uyghurs, for uh, Hong Kong, for theft of intellectual uh, property, for trying to intimidate Taiwan. Very strong statements of support for Taiwan. So my, my guess is what we'll see, again, is a lot of continuity uh we'll probably see um more emphasis on human rights and democracy related concerns i don't think though you'll see anything like the calls you saw from the previous secretary of state mr pompeo that were tantamount to regime change basically challenging uh, the communist party and xi jinping personally uh i I don't think you'll see any uh, repetition uh, of that uh and I think this will be a, a difficult relationship. I think it will be defined more by uh, friction. And But as the president recently articulated, uh, President Biden, the goal will be to push back where necessary, whether it's Taiwan or the Indian border or human rights or economics, but to still sustain areas of uh, trade, to uh, Continue to have obviously a diplomatic uh, relationship on things like, say, on North Korea or uh, Afghanistan or, or or climate change. So the, the the challenge will be: can the United States and work and China work out a relationship where we we disagree on any number of issues, the disagreements don't spill over into confrontation, say, in the South China Sea or over Taiwan, and where at the same time those disagreements don't preclude limited. Or selective cooperation, where both countries, in principle, decide it's in their interest to do so. So you know this will be a difficult uh, diplomacy to to pull off. But I think that's the that's the going in position.
0: So we talked a bit about how certain regions or continents write the history of certain centuries. Right? We talked about, or you mentioned that Europe certainly wrote the history of the 20th century. Asia looks likely to write the history of the 21st century. But I guess one continent that to me always seems like it's overlooked is Africa. In your book you note that Africa is Africa's population will grow from 1.1 billion to 3.9 billion by 2100, just in about 80 years, and this will eclipse other populous regions of the world. However, in your book, the section on Africa is also the shortest chapter. Uh, which somewhat reflects this perceived lack of focus on the continent in traditional Western foreign policy spheres of thought. And you note that the future of Africa is likely to be uneven. What opportunities does the continent present in your view? And is the continent going to be a focal point of geopolitical competition between the great powers anytime in the near future, or is it already?
2: Lots of things I could say. Look, I think
0: the most interesting
2: thing about Africa going forward is a few things. One is, as you say, is the demographic increase. So much of the rest of the world is not democratically, demographically, sorry, also not democratically for that matter, but not demographically uh, growing. Uh, Most of the world will be aging. Africa will be both growing and overall not aging. There's a, if you will, uh, an open-ended youth bulge. Like that could be a blessing, that could be a, a burden. It all depends upon governance, which gets to the other big reality of Africa. Whereas in other parts of the world, so much of stability is the question of relations between countries. I think that's true, say, of, uh, of Asia for the most part, uh, also the Middle East. I think in, in Africa going forward, so much of the question of stability will be conditions within countries and whether... Uh, national governments can exert authority and maintain order throughout the country. I think it's an open question, for example, in a country like uh, Nigeria, just to name uh, the, the most populous country in, uh, in Africa. So I'm less concerned than some others about you know, the questions of Chinese or other inroads. I think outsiders will, will meet degrees of resistance. I'm not particularly worried about classic w- wars in Africa. Between this country and that, I'm more worried about again the inability of countries to function well, whether it's because of terrible uh, governments, uh, whether it's because of climate change, which makes it uh, you know makes large parts of their of, of uh, make large areas of land essentially no longer able to sustain large scale uh, human existence. I think those are the real questions facing uh, Africa going forward. So I think that's somewhat different. Say, than um, more than somewhat different than, say, the future of Europe or Asia, which don't face those kinds of, uh, which so much internal problems as they do classic international relations problems. I think Africa, in that sense, is probably a little bit more like Latin America. Latin America doesn't face the demographic pressures. But again, the biggest challenges in Latin America, I believe, are internal matters of governance, the ability of governments to maintain order, provide conditions for economic growth. And I think the Middle East is a little bit of a mixture of the both of the two. The Middle East is the part of the world that probably has the greatest potential both for internal challenges to order and challenges to order that come from relations between states. And it's one of the many reasons that the Middle East has been, is, and will
1: likely continue to be the least orderly part of the world. Absolutely. And I'm excited to kind of get your thoughts a little further about the Middle East. But I want to talk about Europe first, just because you talked about uh, the future of Europe. And I think there's many uh, factors probably uh, worsened by the coronavirus pandemic that have kind of put the state or the future of the European Union in in flux. And so, uh, Dr. Hassan, your opinion is, is the EU on the cusp of strengthening itself? Is it going to fall apart? because we have you know Brexit being finalized. We have backsliding among member states. We have Angela Merkel leaving as chancellor with the possibility of a more Russia-friendly uh, chancellor taking her place. And so it looks like uh, it, it might be Emmanuel Macron's Europe. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are about the state of Europe and, and the EU in particular.
2: Yeah, go back and forth on this. Uh, if you had asked me this question two years ago, I would have been more pessimistic than I am now, interestingly enough, I think. COVID has, uh, ironically enough, perhaps counterintuitively enough, uh, has in some ways strengthened Europe. And that is because European institutions, trans-European institutions like the European Central Bank, the European Commission, have stepped up. Franco-German cooperation has increased. So in that sense, the fabric of the EU is stronger. Brexit, the reality of Brexit in some ways wasn't as bad as the threat of it. Other countries have not followed suit. It's been such a miserable experience for the UK that other countries are not queuing up to do their version of uh, Brexit. And I think the UK will suffer more than the EU as a result of the, uh, of, of the, the divorce. Uh, look, but the, as you say correctly, there's any number of challenges or clouds or overhangs about Europe's future. There's, all, there's the perennial question of the relationship between member states and Brussels. What's the balance of authority and power between the two? There is the specific question of a Merkel succession. She has been there for over a decade. Germany has played an outsized role. Will it continue uh, to? There is the question of the external threat from Russia. Uh, We see it, obviously, in Ukraine and Georgia. We could conceivably see it uh, elsewhere, particularly if Mr. Putin decides he needs to distract attention away from his domestic Uh, his domestic challenges. Mr. Macron faces a severe internal challenge politically. It's not clear he's going to be uh, reelected. So I think there's, again, there's there's big questions over Europe. I don't mean to uh, in any way underestimate them. I'm just saying that compared to one or two years ago, I
1: feel slightly better, but that's not to be confused with sanguine. Well, as a Russianist, I think I'm obliged to ask a question on on the state of Russia and your thoughts about it, because we've we've seen a lot of of uh, civil unrest within Russia, particularly because of the arrest and now imprisonment of uh, opposition uh, politician Alexei Navalny. And so, Dr. Haas, uh, where where do you see the state of of Russia's democracy movement going? Is there do you have any optimism? I guess is. This is the short question? I guess more broadly looking, uh, is is Vladimir Putin's power kind of deteriorating, and will we see kind of a a return to uh, maybe what the scene was like in the in the '90s in Russia?
2: And These questions—they're uh, all good. They're a little bit. Uh, your job is easier than mine. You get to ask them, and I have to answer them. And uh, these are these are really tough, uh, tough questions because there's how would I put it? There's both known unknowns and unknown unknowns. If I may chatter channel Donald Rumsfeld here. Look, I'm impressed by the degree of a protest and pushback we see in Russia. There's a lot of brave people there. They know they are risking life and limb, be it from the police in the streets or from prison. I mean, you just, you just have to admire the, uh, the bravery and just how many people have come into the streets. I also think it reflects um, Mr. Putin's failure as a a leader of developing a a Russian economy and a Russian society. It also, I think, is a reflection of Navalny's uh, ability to focus attention on corruption. It's an issue that a lot of people get. There's nothing abstract about it. They see the pictures and the videos of uh, these fancy houses on the Black Sea and they get it. And at the end of the day, what is Mr. Putin's system of governance so much as a a kleptocracy? And he and several dozens of his cronies uh, have have made out well, and the society as a whole uh, has not. That said, I'm not wildly optimistic. I'd love to be wrong. And good news is I often am. But it's hard to be optimistic because when you study the history of popular protest, and I've looked at it, say, against other authoritarian regimes during the cold war, say in Eastern Europe, against China in Tiananmen uh, Square and so forth, the, the authorities tend to prevail if two things are present. One is the ruler is really, really strong. And second of all, that he or conceivably she, but he usually he uh, has the loyalty uh, of the security forces and they are willing to kill their fellow citizens. Now where, where we've seen two successful overthrows in the modern era, one is in Iran in 79 and the Shah was indefi- indecisive and ultimately the security forces wouldn't turn on their fellow Iranians uh, to defend the Shah and the regime fell and we had the Islamic revolution in 79. And then years later, you had people's power in the Philippines, and Marcos was again a leader who was shaky, had no resolve, he was ill, as uh, you may recall, uh, with all sorts of uh, kidney type uh, issues and again, the security forces wouldn't uh, wouldn't ultimately mow down their their own people and again, you had a, a navalny like figure in in the streets of uh, of Manila. My concern about Russia is Putin is uh, willing to stand tough. And so far, at least, I see no sign that the security forces are are wavering. So again, I'm impressed by the scale, regularity of the uh, protests. Mr. Mr. Navalny, though, is going to be in prison, it looks like. Uh, I think Putin is trying to practice what you might call uh, political decapitation. So we'll see what happens. But at the moment, at least, I can't sit here and, and, and give you the upbeat answer I would like to give you, but, uh, but like I said, I, I, I hope I'm wrong. Well, let me say one other thing. I think what this also though does suggest is that Putin has made no progress in institutionalizing Putinism. So we may not see the kind of political change we'd like to see in Russia now. Putin may be too strong for that. But it also suggests to me that his ability to institutionalize Putinism is unlikely. And that after him, there could be a real scramble or struggle uh, for political power. And I can imagine a whole range of outcomes at that uh, point. I don't, I don't just mean in the way of personalities, but really political uh, systems. And I think there could be real challenges to the cohesion of the country.
0: So I want to talk about some issues related to pandemic. But before that, I just want to touch on one region that we haven't talked about, but mentioned briefly, the Middle East. Uh, as we're sort of drawing down the U.S. presence there in some respects, uh, do you think the Middle East is going to continue to be defined by this proxy conflict between the Saudis and the Iranians? Uh, do you think the future of the Middle East, at least for this century, is going to be sort of immersed in ethno-religious conflict? What What's your take on the future? Yes,
2: uh, is my answer. I, look, I, I don't see that the Middle East has what you might call the preconditions or prerequisites of order. And as I said before, what I think makes the Middle East depressingly different is that it it faces a present and conceivably a reality, most likely a reality, in which it faces both threats within countries as well as between and among them. So so the answer to your question is both. Uh, I think you now have this axis of uh, Iran with its various partners and proxy forces around the region uh, against the Sunni Arabs and also Israel. And you see countries like Yemen, Syria, Libya, slightly different way, uh, Lebanon, uh, unable to build a society that is uh, in any way resembling what we think of as a normal society. I, I could see both of those sets of realities continuing. What's curious about this is the the fault line that so often defined the Middle East for the last 50 years or longer, which is the Israeli-Palestinian fault line, or the Israeli-Arab fault line, to be more accurate, that has largely faded. Certainly the Israeli-Arab fault line has faded, in part because of the emergence of an Iranian challenge that everyone seems to think is, is, for good reason, is more problematic, in part just a bit out of exhaustion. I think The Palestinians have mishandled their relations with their their quote-unquote Arab uh, brothers. Now, the Israeli-Palestinian fault line still remains, but that's less of a security fault line than I think in some ways it becomes a demographic and political fault line. And the question is, how does Israel um, maintain its identity as a Jewish democratic uh, country uh, at the, uh, uh, and how is it going, you know, going to meet Palestinian political aspirations? And I would simply say, if it wants to remain a Jewish democratic country, it has to find a way to meet at least some Palestinian political aspirations, enough to create some type of a two-state uh, outcome. But again, that's a third fault line, if you will, but it's, it's not as uh, significant right now to the region as either the uh, Iranian Sunni slash Israeli fault line and the fault line of uh, order or disorder within several of the countries of the region.
0: So when we look at some of the issues that are outlined in the book The World, which are many certainly, we see topics such as globalization, nuclear proliferation, climate change, and trade. Issues that were certainly at the forefront of news cycles when you actually wrote the book. However, the book was published in the spring of 2020, at this initial onset of COVID-19, when we were at this sort of end of the beginning, at that realization that we were going to have global geopolitical consequences from this pandemic for years to come. Uh, Moreover, recent events in our own country have highlighted the importance of the cyber landscape and other issues, certainly. And... The prominence of certain issues comes and goes as geopolitical waves and circumstances occur. Is there any particular issue area that you believe will be the key issue in the next 25 years?
2: I I guess I'd say three things. Um, If I'm allowed three instead of one, you tell me.
0: Uh, You are. (laughs) Thank you. Uh,
2: One is what you were getting at it which is all these global challenges. And the real question is whether you're dealing with climate or the uh, internet or proliferation or what have you, can you narrow the gap between uh, these global challenges and global responses? We're obviously suffering now in in the infectious disease realm, uh, but but we're also suffering in these other realms. So I think there's that. And uh, that's a real challenge, I think, for the 21st century. And that might ultimately be the defining challenge. If you think of infectious disease, you think of terror, you think of proliferation, you obviously think of climate change, you think of um, regulation of of an internet. My guess is those are likely to be the defining challenges for this era of um, history. A second challenge, uh, I think, is uh, still great power rivalry. China and Russia, and how one's going to deal with with them, though they're in many ways going in different directions, and they they constitute very different kinds of challenges. And then thirdly, and it affects both of the other two, and it it will be what role will the United States play? And for 75 years, uh, I like to describe the United States as both the uh, principal architect and the general contractor of uh, much of world order. We've played an outside role, outsized role, beginning with uh, in World War II, our entry into the war, uh, ever since through the war, the post-Cold War, I mean, the post-World War II period, the Cold War, the post-Cold War period. And over the last five or six years, beginning in the late Obama administration, accelerating dramatically in the Trump administration, we'll see what happens now in the Biden administration. The United States has had second or third thoughts about playing such a, a large role. And we face, obviously, enormous internal challenges. So if you add all this up, these these, glo- these growing global challenges, uh, the, the more familiar challenge of great power rivalry, which China does pose a very different kind of challenge than the Soviet Union did, and now real issues about America's willingness and ability to play a significant world role. Uh, I'm hard-pressed to say which of these three is going to emerge as defining,
1: but any one or two or all three of them could. All three are, are, are deeply concerning, and I think one in particular, this this idea of a world order, which is the last chapter of your book, that being the quote-unquote liberal world order. Uh, and so, Dr. Haas, kind of before we kind of dive into what uh, the liberal order is and what it does, would you mind uh, kind of outlining how you perceive uh, the, this liberal world order, how it interacts and whether or not uh, you see an actual return or, or whether or not it actually truly existed in the first place? Because there are some you know, scholars who argue that we never actually had a, a liberal world order to begin with.
2: Well, we've clearly had a world order over the last 75, 80 years. It's a remarkable one. Uh, we haven't seen a world war. Great power rivalry have not, has not spilled over into a uh, great power war. One reason I would argue is nuclear weapons have dampened dampened down U.S.-Soviet competition during the uh, Cold War and still have a residual effect over U.S.-Russia and U.S.-Chinese competition. But I also think we built global institutions, we built uh, arrangements, so we gave countries a stake in participating in the, the world as it evolved rather than in trying to overthrow it. So this combination of a conventional and military and nuclear balance, coupled with institutions that, we, that offered countries the chance to uh, better themselves economically, uh, improve living standards, uh, and so forth, uh, essentially worked remarkably uh, well. And democracy didn't become universal, so it wasn't liberal in that sense, but a lot of countries initially, first of all, they became independent countries. Uh, The colonial period ended, you had the rise of the modern nation-state era, so he went from what? 50 or so countries to nearly 200, Uh, and we've had a significant degree of democratization in the world. There's been some backsliding in the last 15 or so years, but the general trends in history over the last 75 years have been in the the direction of greater democracy, greater economic uh, openness, more markets and and so forth. So the question is, can this be sustained? And uh, again, I think the challenges are what I just described. The challenges will be, can we adapt institutions or launch new ones that will deal with these global challenges? Uh, will the United States still be willing and able to play a significant role? And will the more authoritarian systems uh, resist participation in this or how would I put it? Uh, almost like a um, a la carte approach to dinner. Will they choose only those areas of participation, say economically, that, that suit them, but will they promote very different uh, values uh, when it comes to uh, politics and how will all that play out? So I don't know if uh, a liberal world order, if any world order for that matter, can, uh, can operate in the future. Uh, that comes back to again these these big questions that I've that I've already discussed.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, the last point you raised, that being this commit, kind of selective à la carte participation in these institutions, is a, is a fascinating one. Uh, particularly because when we look at you know the United Nations uh, specifically, we see China and Russia, which are you know not democratic countries, that are deeply engaged in the UN, UN system, particularly because of their seats on the Security Council. And that provides a lot of challenges to some of the meaningful work that the UN does. And so, Dr. Haas, in your, in your view, uh, can the UN be an effective international organization if we have these autocratic regimes having significant power or say, or maybe kind of shaping the subsidiary organizations within the United Nations? So You're going to like my answer here because it's going to be my shortest uh, answer of this entire podcast. No.
2: Uh, that's the answer. The UN cannot be a meaningful uh, actor in the world. But just to be clear, the, my follow-up answer is a little bit longer. That doesn't mean there there can't be or shouldn't be or won't be multilateral answers. It just won't be the UN. And uh, What I think we need to do is increasingly separate our thinking or distinguish our thinking about multilateralism from our thinking about the UN, be it the Security Council or the General Assembly. And I think uh what we're going to need is to forge various multilateral mechanisms to deal with whatever set of challenges whether it's proliferation or climate uh, or infectious disease what have you and what i think we're going to move away from is the is the either the security council or the general assembly model of a nearly 200 countries all of whom have some kind of uh you know the right to, to block things as they do in the security council or make life difficult in the general assembly, uh, where you have a quote unquote, one country, one vote. So I think you're going to have coalitions of the willing or coalitions of the willing to be able and relevant. Sometimes these will be formal. Sometimes these will be informal, but I think it's going to be, uh, different groupings of countries to deal with different, uh, challenges. And I think, you know, so I think multilateralism is essential, but I think we're going to have to be much more uh, practical, and much more flexible, much more dynamic in, in, in what, what kind of multilateralism we embrace for us to meet specific challenges.
0: Dr. Haas, our last question. And as you know, going back to the introduction of your book, The World, you were really motivated to write this book, as you told us, because people just don't know enough about the world. So aside from getting your book, of course, which I recommend our audience get as soon as they're able... How can we get more people, especially young people, more engaged with international relations, global politics, and what's actually going on, even if it doesn't mean that they're going to enter a career in the field and so on?
2: I think you put it right. Uh, then there's no reason that most will or should enter the field. I mean, look, uh, I want informed citizens to use the, Th- the Thomas Jefferson formulation. So whether you're a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, a school teacher, a nurse, a sanitation worker, uh, a government worker, or you're someone who works in a restaurant or bar, you're a citizen. You 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 have I would say the responsibility, not just the right to to vote. If you have the right to vote, you do have the responsibility. I would I would argue to be informed. So you cast an informed uh vote so you can watch political debates and um, with a degree of uh, skepticism so when you and you you can discern facts from from things that are anything but uh facts uh i think the best way to do this is for schools to take on a larger role and yeah you know, again the only thing every american does is he or she goes to high school through the age of uh 16 so I would think public investment in our public schools is critical. Then, uh, you know, millions of people obviously graduate high school, millions more go on to college. So to make, you have to have core courses, required courses on both domestic civics as well as what I would call global civics, uh, I think should become the norm in both high schools and colleges. I don't think anyone should graduate from a high school or a college in this country without having under his or her belt the basics of American democracy and the basics of the world and our relationship with the uh, world. I don't see how you can be prepared for a 21st century life, prepared to be a, a citizen, uh, an informed citizen without that. Then, you know, then you've got to hope that people take advantage of certain things. There's you know, uh, great websites. I'd like to think our own is CFR.org, Great magazines like Foreign Affairs, really good magazines, also like The Economist, The Atlantic, The New Yorker, certain shows on radio or television that are that are informed. You know, people then have to avail themselves of those resources. What I'm hoping is if more people are exposed to civics and global civics in high school and college, they will be more likely to read or tune in to these various offerings uh, once they're no longer. Uh, Students, so I think that's the that's the the biggest hope for the society. And I think what we've learned the hard way in recent years is American democracy and America's world role
1: are vulnerable unless we do better at this. And on that note, Dr. Haas, I want to thank you very much for such a fantastic conversation. Uh, we really appreciate your insights. And uh, as Andre said, uh, I encourage all of our listeners to check out your work. Uh, go ahead and read his book, The World. It's, it's a great read. It's an easy read. Uh, I very much enjoyed it. I know Andre did as well. And uh, be sure to follow Dr. Haas uh, on Twitter, at Richard Haas. Dr. Haas, once more, thank you, sir, for, for joining us today. We appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Andre. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you for today. And thank you for doing this podcast. Stay well.
1: To hear other fascinating conversations, subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media at BurnBagPod. Thank you for listening. This is the Burn Bag Podcast.